Thank you, choir. Aaron and Lauren, it's good to have you back. Uh, the cross is the central component of the Christian faith. I, I know that when they built this sanctuary, that cross was not originally part of it, that Dr. Sherman uh, hung that cross, right? You and someone else, I forgot who it was, but that they, they put that cross there in, as a reminder of the central theme of the Christian faith, that we did not pay our own debt, that the debt that we owed by our sin was atoned for through the death of Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful, Dr. Sherman, for that beautiful picture that we have reminding us of the central tenet of the Christian faith, the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to continue today in our series in the, the fifth gospel, as it's known, the, the, the book of Isaiah, and we're going to see the fourth servant song, not the fourth one, I'm sorry, the second of four servant songs in Isaiah. All four of these servant songs are quoted in the New Testament because they point to the Messiah. They're all about the hero that's coming to rescue us as God's people. And it's an exciting passage because it's all about Jesus. And that cross behind me is very appropriate uh, as we look at the song of the servant. We're going to continue this series in September of I Need a Hero. I thought about wearing a, maybe a Superman shirt under my, my, my shirt here just to illustrate it, but I didn't. Isaiah has been speaking these words of comfort, of reassurance to his people throughout this section of Isaiah while they're in exile. And today he's going to expand his focus, uh, not just to God's people in exile, but that this hero really applies to all the nations. It's a global mission of the hero. He comes to rescue God's people and everyone else in the world who will pay attention to what he's doing and what God's doing through him and cry out to him. Remember, this, this servant is kind of a mysterious unnamed figure in Isaiah. We don't really get a clear picture of who he is. Last week, we saw that he spoke up suddenly in verse 16 in chapter 48. And earlier in chapter 42, we, we saw this, this servant revealed. It wasn't the same servant that Israel was, the people of God. This is a different servant. This is a, a powerful servant. This is kind of an unnamed, mysterious one who is the anointed one. He is the Messiah who would serve as the centerpiece, the cornerstone of God's plan to make all things new. When I said that we should push back against the, the, the death and the sorrow and the sadness that we see in this world, I mean to remind ourselves and remind others that this is all going somewhere, that it's all going somewhere good that God doesn't waste our grief. He doesn't waste our pain. He redeems it and transforms it because where we're going is, is somewhere good where God makes all things new again. He's in the business of redeeming this broken world. So before we jump into our text for today, I want to just clear a few things up. I often see on social media or hear people uh, quote things that they believe are in the Bible, but actually are, are not in the Bible and quite often are against what the Bible actually says. You know, America has uh, the, the highest number of Bibles per capita. We own a lot of Bibles, but there's not a lot of Bible reading. <laughs> 
uh, other countries in the world have higher biblical literacy rates, like South Korea, like Nigeria even, than, than we do. We have more Bibles, but less Bible knowledge. People say things like, well, the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. No, it doesn't. I'm sorry you're going through a tough time. Just remember the Bible says that God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that right? Is that right? When, when Carter was in the hospital with a heart transplant, could they handle that just fine? God brings us to our knees daily, really, to remind us that we can't do it on our own. He gets us to rely on his perfect power and provision and get away from our own feeble human strength. Nowhere does the Bible say God will never give you more than you can handle. I hear this a lot too. The Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Again, the Bible pretty much says the exact opposite of that phrase. It's clear in Scripture that God only helps those that come to realize that they cannot help themselves. Romans 5, one of the central texts of the gospel. Romans 5, verses 6 and 8 say this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died on the cross for the ungodly. It wasn't that we were so good, it's that Christ loved us, that the Lord loved us and forged a way to make us right. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in rebellion against a high and holy God, Christ died for us. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who cannot help themselves. We're going to see the, the truth of the gospel in Isaiah. Again, I've said this before, that there's both sides of it, right? That we as, as humans are more flawed, more broken, more desperate, more in need than we ever imagined. But at the same time, we're more loved, we're more known, we're more accepted, we're more seen and loved and, and lavished upon with grace than we ever dared to hope. We're going to see that play out in our text for today. Isaiah is once again showing us the reality of who we are and who God is. Who God is and who we are really in light of who God is. And that God sends a hero for us because we need it. Because we cannot save ourselves. It's fun to imagine, you know, when you watch a superhero movie that, that you're the hero. I don't know about you, maybe I'm just my arrogance and my pride, but I like to imagine that I'm Batman, that I have it all figured out, or that I'm Superman, that I can be the one to, to rescue people, that I'm as agile as Spider-Man or as smart and as funny as Iron Man. I was putting on my jacket in the hallway today and someone said, oh, you look 40. <laughs> I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> I feel 50, so... <laughs> The reality is that we're not the hero. The reality is that we more closely resemble that damsel in distress than we do the hero. The, the reality is that we're the one that is about this far from hitting the pavement when the hero comes to swoop us up. Once we understand this, we can begin to live into the grace and the freedom that comes from knowing that we have a, a good and capable hero who always wins. So I've broken down our text into four parts for today. What we're going to see is a good hero and a people who are in peril. How God saves those who cannot save themselves. And the first 
section, we're going to see good news for people who love bad news in the first four verses. Then after that, we're going to move on to a good servant hero for the failed servant, Israel. Again, you see these two servants in contrast to each other. Then in, in the third part, we're going to see how God is like a good mother, and we are like her insecure, needy, questioning, whiny child. We don't know anything about that at my house. Four, we're going to finally see that God is like a good husband, and again, we are like his faithless family who has really abandoned him, and yet we accuse him of abandoning us. I know that may sound harsh. It's not fun to think of ourselves in these, you know, pathetic kind of terms. But if we can embrace the reality, not only of our desperation, but of God's greatness and of God's love, then we can learn how to die more fully to ourselves and how to embrace the abundant life that God freely offers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let's jump in with part one. Good news for people who just can't get enough bad news. Isaiah 49, we're in Isaiah chapter 49, verses one to four. Hear now the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. This is the hero speaking. This is the hero himself. The, the mask is kind of coming off. I know we're all in masks these days, but we're kind of getting a clearer picture of who the hero is. He's expanding the mission of God to the coastlands and to all the nations of the earth. He's the one that the Lord sent. We, we saw in chapter 48 that God sent him with the Holy Spirit to the world. He's the one who speaks truth that's so powerful that it's like a sword that just divides between right and wrong, that just cuts to the heart of the matter. Remember how Jesus is described by John the Revelator? I know that Ed and Becky are on their way to Patmos. They're going to be where John received the, the revelation in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, but remember how he, he sees Jesus? He sees the glorious Son of Man, Jesus Christ, standing among his church and wearing a long robe with a golden sash tied around him. And look how he describes him in Revelation chapter 1. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The sword is in his mouth. Why? Because he speaks the truth in a way that is so powerful. John sees that, that Jesus is the logos, the word of God made flesh, the full revelation of God's nature and of God's will and of God's love. 
And he comes not with a, a massive army. He comes not like the Persians in Cyrus with a, a warlord and, and weapons and uh, all these uh, armies behind him, but he comes with something more powerful. He comes with truth and grace. He was full of truth and grace. He was lifted up from the earth on a cross so that all that looked to him and his truth and grace might be saved. But the people that he came to rescue didn't want to hear it. They didn't want any part of it. Verse 4 tells us that his efforts seemed to be in vain. He says, you know, I came to these people, but they didn't listen. They fell on deaf ears. That reminds us of the Gospel of John, which was written hundreds of years later. In chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, John tells us, about the true light of the world that gives light to everyone was going to come into the world. How exciting. Keep going, Esau. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. How sad. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's why the mission is expanding now out from the people of God to the coastlands even. We don't want the truth. We'd rather believe the little lies that the world continues to tell us because they make us feel good for a little while, at least. But the truth is that Jesus alone comes to bring us life, abundant life. While the world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, who's only about stealing and killing and destroying. But just because God's people rejected him, doesn't mean that God's mission failed. Doesn't mean that the hero is, is not able to rescue. It was never about saving a, a special ethnicity or a specific nation. God's plans for redemption are global in scope. He's going to reverse the curse of sin and death and sorrow for all peoples. We need to think bigger. That leads us to part two, how God steps in to provide a true servant hero to do what the failed servant Israel was supposed to do. Look at verses five and six. Remember, Israel was supposed to serve as a conduit of God's blessing to all the peoples of the earth, but they couldn't cut it. Look at verses five and six. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb, all this language about forming in the womb, by the way, when people wonder why evangelicals, uh, you know, rail against abortion, it's because it's of texts like these that talk about God forming us in the womb, God naming us in the womb, that God cares about life from the womb to the tomb. It's all sacred and divine. He formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. So it's not Jacob, it's someone who's going to redeem Jacob, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Our God is too great to just save a small group. His salvation is global in scope. He's going to be a light for the nations through Jesus. 
Remember in John 8, I know you do, just nod your heads because we went through John a couple years ago and you all loved it. And uh, <laughs> there's this feast called Sukkot and Jesus was at Jerusalem for the feast of Sukkot. And they had these lanterns blazing all night long in the four corners of the temple courtyards. And Jesus walks up to the temple in the middle of these lanterns, in the middle of this great festival of lights. And he says, I am the light of the world. John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light that Isaiah spoke of, a light for the nations. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. That's what John 1 said. Jesus came as the light and life of all humankind. We who follow Jesus don't walk in darkness anymore. Then look at how God addresses the, the servant hero. God speaks to him in verses 7 through 12. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised. This is not someone like Cyrus, who was the great king of the Persian Empire, the founder of the Persian Empire, who was loved and adored by millions across the globe. This servant is a suffering servant, one who was despised and rejected, as we're going to see in chapter 53, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves to the servant because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who's chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. Reminds us of Psalm 23, that God leads us by the still waters. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene, that's the south of Egypt. All these people will be gathered to the Lord through the servant and through the Lord's might in that day. The faithful remnant would soon be set free and put back on the road to Jerusalem, a highway going home. We need to remember all of this in the context of their liberation from bondage, a second exodus from Babylon back to Jerusalem. But Isaiah's pointing to something even greater than the exodus from Egypt or the exodus from Babylon. He's pointing to another exodus that's even a greater deliverance. The Apostle Paul quotes from verse 8 when he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now, Paul says, is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What a blessing that we get to live on this side of the cross. 
We get to see the power of the cross. We get to live in the day of salvation. Paul says that time has come because of Jesus, our hero. We're not waiting any longer for rescue. Now is the time to, to reach out our hand and let Jesus save us. It's time to, to trust in him. It's time God says that we understand that Jesus is the new covenant that he's given as a covenant for the people. That means he's the seal on God's promise to do what he said he's gonna do and make all things new and bring a special family unto himself. When we drank the, the cup of the Lord's Supper together last week, we remembered how Jesus is given to us, that his blood establishes this new covenant era, this new promise of salvation that we get to be a part of. What an amazing thing, what a privilege that is for us. The promise of hope that God gives us here leads to the kind of rejoicing that people who are freed from bondage, freed from slavery, engage in. It reminds me of the, the chip ceremonies at CR. People celebrate their freedom, that the bondages of, of sin and addiction have, have fallen off, that through Jesus they found hope. And look at verse 13, this great shout of joy. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Again, God's salvation is global. It's cosmic in scope. It's not just about you know, a few people getting saved. It's about making all things new. Oh, mountains, break forth into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We saw that last week, how uh, God's people leave exile with a shout of joy, with worship, with, with praise, declaring to the world how God has brought his people back home. But the problem is we're terribly insecure, aren't we? Deep down, you know, in my weakness, I worry about my kids uh, as the rate of anxiety, as the rate of depression skyrockets, especially among our younger generations. We are so insecure and our, our society is rampant with insecurity. And that brings us to part three, how God cares for us like a good, nurturing, caring mother in spite of our insecurity. Look at verses 14 to 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. This is Jerusalem. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God's thinking constantly about the ruins of Jerusalem, the walls that have fallen down. He said, I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm never going to forget you. We've had a run of just uh, beautiful babies that have been born in our congregation. I think we had like eight babies or something, Rachel, in like the span of like two months. And our, our nice conference room, which we got new chairs and a nice new TV set up in there. And I was feeling very professional about our conference room uh, for all of our committee meetings. And now it's kind of been transformed into a nursing mother's room, <laughs> which I love. I love. It's got a changing table and it's got a rocking chair and all kinds of accoutrement that go along with uh, nursing mothers. Because that's the future of our church. 
And we, uh, the other nursing mother room is on the other side of the church. So this one's just right around the corner there. If anyone needs it, please uh, feel free to go and use it. But just like a nursing mother, our Lord could never forget us. He has such great devotion to us. And at the risk of sounding too controversial here, let me just say that the Christian church has a long history of, of patriarchy that's not healthy, that's not biblical, because the Bible contains several of these images like this uh, about God relating to us as a mother and as a father, because it takes both. You know, God is beyond gender. God is not male, nor is he female. And this is not me trying to be woke. I'm not trying to be culturally relevant. I'm trying to be biblical. Even Jesus said that he longed to gather Jerusalem. How? As a mother longs to gather her, her chicks under her gentle wings. The Bible says that God made both male and female in his image. And we say his, we use masculine pronouns because that's what the Bible does. That's what Jesus did. But we would also do well to remember that it takes both genders to even come close to approaching the image of God and accurately bearing the image of God to a world that desperately needs it. You know, I remember when May, you talk about a mother's love, when, when May was born, our second child, uh, my wife held her in her arms for the first time. It's my favorite picture of, of Morgan here, just radiant, and you got this, red-faced newborn just screaming. And Morgan's just glowing with joy. She's just so happy. And, and she said to May, I'll never forget this. She said, you know, I didn't know if I could love another child as much as I loved Jude, our first child. And she said, something happened when you were born. The Lord expanded my heart. And I was able to love you as much as I love my, my first child. A mother's love for her child is, is just so apparent there, isn't it? A mother's love for her child is never ending. It's a very powerful, very special bond. And that's how God says he feels about us. Let that sink in. God is a good, good father. He's also a good, good mother to us. And he nurtures us and he cares for us like a good mother does as well. And then God's love for us is even beyond that. In verse 16, it implies that God is, is holding out his hands to us and saying, look, I've engraved your name onto my hands. How could I ever forget you or forsake you? You know, this gives us a tremendous assurance. In 1863, an Irish woman named Charity Bancroft penned these words to a hymn that we sometimes sing here. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. The image that Isaiah gives us here is of a childless woman suddenly surrounded by her miraculous offspring. Look at verses 18 to 21. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places. He's talking to Jerusalem about her children returning. Your devastated land, surely now you will be too. 
narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. There's not enough room. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? God in his grace gives this barren woman back her children. It's a beautiful picture of his grace. That's how the church expands and grows. It's miraculous and exponential. And then that brings us to our final section showing how God is like a good husband and we're like a faithless family. Look at chapter 50, verses one to three. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The truth is that, that God is, is being ironic here. He's saying, do you have a certificate of divorce? Of course you don't, because I've never divorced you. Do you, do you have you been sold because I needed money to pay off my creditors? Do I owe anybody money? Of course not. He's, he's being ironic here because God owes no one, and God will never divorce his bride. He's faithful to us, but his children are complaining of feeling abandoned, feeling neglected, they feel like they've been sold into slavery and that their mother, Jerusalem, was sent away and divorced. But God has not given up on Jerusalem. God is going to build the walls back and redeem her. As if God needed money and would sell his children. As if God would turn his back on his covenant to Jerusalem. As if he would ever send his bride away. The truth is found there at the end of verse 1. For your iniquities... You were sold, and, and for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. What God's children call divorce and being sold, God calls covenant discipline. In his love for us, God disciplines us. And after centuries of gentle, patient, faithful provision for his children, he finally says enough and allows them to be taken once again into exile and slavery for their own good. He never abandoned them. He never turned his back on them. And why do we live like functional atheists then? As if God's arm is too short to, to pull us up. Again, no one has fallen too far. There are people I know in this room who say, God could never love me. He could never save me. I've done too much wrong. That's not true. God's arm can reach you no matter where you are. His grace is sufficient. And, and why do we live as if God isn't who he says he is? If it's, if it's if he's not faithful, as if uh, he can't actually save us, as if he's not always good and always in charge. The reality that we need to understand today is that God did send a hero. He did send a rescuer for each of us here a light for the nations, a new covenant for the people 
who would receive him. He's able to save us when we can't save ourselves. And you know when that is? All the time. Let's trust in him then. Let's surrender our lives afresh to him, anew to him today. What are you holding on to that you need to surrender to him today? What part of your heart are you withholding from him when he wants your whole heart? What part of your life, what area of your life are you not letting go of? Our hero is good and he will save us if only we will reach out and take his hand and let go of everything else. Let's pray. Lord God, we, in our feeble human strength, so often turn to our idols to save us, to rescue us. When you offer us your mighty hand, Lord, forgive us for looking to other things of this world to save us, to give us our identity, to give us our security. Forgive us for even accusing you of turning your back on us. God, the truth is you are always faithful. You are always good. And that 100% of the time, it's not you who've left God. It's we who've left you. It's we who've turned our back on you. It's we who've separated ourselves from you by our sin and by choosing our way over your way. God, I pray that today you would restore us to yourself we would fully abandon ourselves to you in a whole fresh way, whether it's for the very first time or whether it's for the millionth time, God. May we leave this place today confident in your rescue, secure in your mighty hand, secure in your faithful covenant promise and love for us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ in the first place, there's no better time to do so than right now. To receive the free gift of salvation that is yours through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith in him. If you've never repented of your sin, that means turning from your sin and turning towards the Lord, there's no better time to do that than right now. And if you're a Christian, you've already done that, guess when you need to repent again? Right now. <laughs> we all need to repent daily. And I encourage you in this moment, when we sing our hymn of response, to make that commitment to turn from your sin, to turn to the Lord, to surrender everything to him, to not withhold any part of your life or your heart from him. Whatever it is that you need to do in this time of response, will you stand and sing with us now and deal honestly with the Lord? The altar will be open if you want to come pray, if you want to come pray with me or just by yourself here, whatever it is you need to do in this time, let's be honest with the Lord.